Which is a really nerdy way of just saying that we feel very comfortable kind of borrowing from many different traditions that have helped people walk toward Jesus together. So we do stuff that might feel kind of contemporary and stuff that might feel kind of ancient or formal. And we actually, we like how all of that comes together here. And we want to keep experimenting with different ways that we can uh, avail ourselves of all these riches that come from the history that we're a part of and the traditions that we come from and the creativity and the energy of the world that we live in right now and all the good stuff that comes from that. So that's what we're up to. And another thing that's a big part of that, you might have noticed if you've been around at all, is uh, this thing, <laughs> the Bible, the scriptures. So we spent uh, early in our church life, we were in the book of Acts for a very long time over and over again, just like reading the book of Acts and asking ourselves, what is a church? And then we spent quite a while in the book of Genesis and in all of that time, we only got through 12 chapters. <laughs> And we're really quite fond of just sort of moving through these, these pages little by little and seeing how they speak to us and seeing how they shape us. But after all of that Bible stuff, we thought maybe we should take a step back and ask some questions about the way this book works and what it is and how we relate to it as a community. And we borrowed a, a word that I got from a friend who's a member of our church, and they were talking about their faith in general. And they said, I kind of think I need a faith rehab, like to be rehabilitated in this, to reapproach my relationship to all things faith. And we grabbed that word and we've been using it for the way that we relate to the Bible, Bible rehab. How does this book work? How do we work with it? Do we need to revisit some ideas or ask some new questions? So that's where we've been. Uh, the first we talked about the fact that this book comes from particular times and places and that it's really helpful to understand something about the times and places it comes from if we're going to try to figure out what this book is saying to us in the time and place that we're in right now, right? So that was week one. We talked a little bit about Radiohead, because why not? And we talked a lot about the scriptures. And then last week we talked uh, about this being a communal book, that this book comes out of community, uh, that it calls us into community, that it's best understood in community. Ryan preached. He preached such a barn burner that I was sitting here Tuesday night, and I didn't notice that there was water leaking from this thing, but some of you did. Uh, there were like bubbles coming out of the corner where the air was meeting the water. It was like Lawrence Welk meets church, right? <laughs> but I didn't notice any of that because I was so um, sort of caught up in what Ryan was talking about, about this book as a communal book. It comes out of community, it calls us into community, and it's best read in community. And before we go into tonight's ideas, I just thought we'd do a little bit of debrief, kind of open floor, see if anybody wants to talk for a second. So here's the question, or several questions all piled up, and we'll see if anybody wants to be brave and just speak out a little bit. In the last couple of weeks, if you've been here or if you've been listening to the podcast, anything that has surprised you, anything that has um, moved you, anything that's caught you off guard or that's confirmed something for you, anything that's been helpful, anything that you heard and you said, yes, that's what I needed to hear about this, or anything that you're still wrestling with, that you're chewing on, that you're not sure what to do with, any of that. It's a big sort of stack of questions about how you've experienced the last two weeks, but I wonder if anybody wants to just pipe up and uh, tell us a little bit about what you've been thinking and dealing with. Eyes all day and you're sleepy now and you came here for a good nap. Anybody want to be brave? Let's, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's awesome. So I'll, I'll repeat it so you guys can hear that. Um, my mom said, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no shame in that. Thank you, mom. Um, 
reflecting that last week, Ryan pointed out that like you go to a bookstore and you look at the theology section and you'll see a bunch of books that are theology, general theology, right? But then you'll see a special section that's, say, black theology or women's theology or whatever. And if you actually look a little more closely at that, you might discover that the general theology section is all the books that are written by white men. And we just call that general theology, right? And then we have these specializations, but that's sort of off base probably, right? Yeah, thank you. Um, I, I, I recently, not too recently, don't worry, but I was applying for a job at a, a church. And uh, <laughs> it was a while ago. But they ask you as a pastor to list your theological influences. Who are the voices that you've tuned into over the years to shape your understanding of your faith? And I wrote a list of 30-some voices, 30-some people, people from history and people who are alive today. And then I looked at the list and I realized every single one of them was a white man. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with being a white man doing theology, but it just begs the question, like, are we missing what this book is experienced as through different life experiences, different races, different socioeconomic experiences, all that stuff wrapped up together. Yeah, thank you. Who else wants to be brave so it's not just my mom rescuing me from a quiet open floor? <laughs> yeah. Say it one more time, I'm sorry. Why does the Bible not actually have an author's name attached to it? You want to say any more about that? Got it. Last couple of weeks, been wrestling with how these stories came together, why these are the ones that were decided to be there, and with not often knowing the name of the author, we can't ask questions about who they were or where they were coming from. Yeah, thank you. Anybody else? Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, last week, Ryan said we need our differences. We need our different life experiences, theological backgrounds, and it speaks better because of it. Yeah. Thanks, Amy. Anybody else? Yeah. Awesome. Uh, you've heard a lot throughout your life about the idea that community matters with this, but you've never heard it so emphasized that community is so central to this. Yeah. Thanks, Emily. Yeah. You're teeing up today, man. Perfect. Yeah. Sorry. Josh said um, you've always like, seen the Bible as like, a great place to get the answers to questions, but now you're celebrating it as a place to wrestle. Did I get that right? Yeah, awesome. Yeah, well, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to run with that because that's perfect. We're going to go there, okay? So uh, a little while ago, I'm preaching someplace else, and I tell some of my story that I've shared with you guys too, which has to do with a, a time of suffering in my life when things got really quite dark. And part of that suffering uh, was me encountering a certain prayer from the scriptures in, in the book of Psalms, Psalm 22, which uh, I stumbled upon it and, and found it as a really meaningful prayer for my own life. 
And the text of that prayer begins, God, why have you forsaken me? And, and there's a, a moment in my journey where I, I kind of connected the dots and realized it's also the exact same prayer that Jesus prays on the cross. The, actually, central to this story is the idea that God suffers with us, that God is, is there in the darkest moments, that God's with us so much that God actually knows what it's like to feel abandoned by God. And so I shared that story, and then after the service, this thing happened that always happens when you preach, which is other people come up and they tell you how you were wrong. And so I share this fairly vulnerable and intimate experience of mine, and somebody comes up, and they, they, they're kind about it, and, and they're coming from a good place. They're trying to engage, right? But they share with me how there's some detail that they heard about Psalm 22, which I'm almost 100% sure is not true, actually, about how that, that took them to the conclusion that Jesus wasn't actually praying out of any kind of suffering, that he prayed that prayer for other reasons that had nothing to do with his own anguish. And, uh, and then another person comes up, and in my sermon, they had heard me grappling with, like, why I had suffered some of those things. And they had a, a really neat and tidy verse from the Bible that explained why I had suffered those things, and they gifted me with that simple explanation so I no longer had to wrestle with it, you know? And in that, I was feeling this thing that we all do a lot. It, it's really tempting to do with our life and our faith and this book. And the thing that I think we're tempted to do is to resolve all of the tension. And today we're going to talk about tension in the text. Tension in the text. The idea that there's actually some things that push back and forth against each other here, and it's not so neat and tidy like that, right? So uh, let's just do a few examples, okay? I'm just going to sort of go micro and sort of then pull out from there a little bit. Look at a couple of examples of tension in the text. So first of all, here's like a really uh, simple kind of right-in-your-face tension in the text. This is Proverbs chapter 26, a wisdom book in the Old Testament where we get these little sort of one-sentence ideas of what is wise. And this is Proverbs 26, verse 4. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you yourself will be just like him. Next verse. Answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. Quiz. Should you answer a fool according to his folly? <laughs> Who knows, right? I mean, it's, it's easy to pull this one out because it's just right there, just a couple of sentences side by side. Uh, but maybe you've been reading the Bible sometime, and you run into something like this, where you read a part of it, and you, you think you have a takeaway, and then you read a little more, and what you, whatever you thought you were supposed to take away, all of a sudden gets muddy or gray, and you're not sure what to do with it. Has anybody ever been there? A couple of you. Okay, yeah. This can happen as we read the scriptures sometimes. Don't answer a fool, answer a fool. That's one example inside the book of Proverbs. Well, let's talk about not just inside the book of Proverbs, side by side, a couple of sentences. Let's pull out a little further. Let's talk about the book of Proverbs as a whole and what's going on in the book of Proverbs. There's, uh, there's like what you might call an operative logic in the book of Proverbs. Like the whole book runs on an operating system, just like your phone, kind of. <laughs> like there, there's an underlying view of the world that's being expressed through all these particular little details. But if you listen to the details, you're going to slowly hear this bigger view of the world. So let me see if you can hear, see if you can detect what that operative logic is. Let me start here. I'm just going to read to you a bunch of different Proverbs from different places in the book. See if you catch a, a theme or an underlying logic in this, okay? So here's Proverbs chapter 10, verse 9. Whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but whoever takes crooked paths will be found out. So just Sit with that for just a second and ask yourself, what's the logic in that? What's, what's underlying that, okay? How about uh, Proverbs chapter 11, verse 8? The righteous person is rescued from trouble, 
and it falls on the wicked instead. Again, the question is like, what's the logic driving behind this? What's the view of the world? The righteous person is rescued from trouble, and it falls on the wicked instead. Or how about Proverbs chapter 14, uh, verse 11? The house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. The house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. Or how about chapter 15, uh, verse 19? The way of the sluggard, which is a word I'm going to try to use more in everyday life. The way of the sluggard is blocked with thorns, but the path of the upright is a highway. How about Proverbs chapter 28, verse 18? The one whose walk is blameless is kept safe, but the one whose ways are perverse will fall into the pit. There's a lot of A-B comparing going on here. Here's one thing that will happen to one kind of person. Here's another thing that will happen to another kind of person. And I could have shown you a bunch more. We could have gone through almost every chapter of Proverbs and we would have found something similar going on, some similar logic. It's like the whole book of Proverbs has one big message. We could maybe summarize it like this. Proverbs is built on the understanding of a world where God rewards righteousness and punishes wickedness. A world where there's a tight, causal relationship between virtue and blessing. Let me, let me get a little more uh, succinct about it. Let's, let's, let's say it more simply like this. Proverbs is a book about how to live in a world where righteousness leads to blessing. It's a book about you, if you are good, if you do good, good will happen to you. That's like the big picture. And then there's all these particular examples and ways that it's being said. If you are good, if you do good, then good will happen to you. Right? That's sort of the, the energy of this thing. Now, what's interesting is the book of Proverbs is in a little local neighborhood in the Bible. So the Bible's organized in, in, in ways. And so early in the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament, we have a lot of history and story. And then we get to a part of the Bible where we have Proverbs and other books that are wisdom literature, is what you could call them. You have um, things like this where we're talking about what kind of world do we live in and how do you live in line with it. So in that neighborhood in the Bible, you have Proverbs, and then as a neighbor to Proverbs, you have another book of the Bible called Job. Now Job is a book of the Bible where a character is in this story who is unimaginably virtuous. Like he's obnoxiously virtuous. Like he's got everything down, he does everything right. God looks at this guy and this is exactly what God wants a person to be. Okay? This is the character of Job and the story of Job. And yet in the story of Job, every single terrible thing that could ever happen to a person happens to the person Job. Every single thing. I mean, he loses all of his loved ones. They literally are killed. They all die. He gets sick. He loses his wealth, his livestock, everything. He's suffering in every imaginable way. And, and, and Job, again, he's the most virtuous character you could ever think of. In other words, so we have Proverbs, a book about how to live in a world where righteousness leads to blessing. And right next to it, we have Job, a book about a world where righteousness and blessing may have no connection at all. And they're right there next to each other. Do you feel some of that tension in the text? It's there. You're not, you're not crazy. There's some tension here to deal with. We could go on and on and on about all the ways, all the places in this Bible where 
where we, we have these different impulses and views and ideas that are sitting side by side, pushing against each other. We were in Genesis. The first chapter of Genesis in the Hebrew is a story about a God named Elohim. That's the word for God in the, in the book of Genesis chapter 1. A God named Elohim who creates the world sort of from a distance just by speaking. And things are perfectly ordered. It's very sublime and beautiful and symmetrical and organized just by speaking. The God Elohim creates the world. In Genesis 2 in the Hebrew, we actually have a story that that writer named Name's Yahweh, not Elohim, who in, in that story, he's not sort of speaking from a distance in this beautiful, symmetrical order. It's, it's a God who gets his hands in the dirt and creates in this very sort of gritty, felt, connected, up-close way, right side by side. And in the Hebrew scriptures, we have two histories of Israel, actually. The history of Israel is told twice, side by side, and there are some tensions in those two stories. And uh, we have, what, four Gospels that tell the story of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All side by side, they're kind of wrestling with one another as we try to understand what's going on in these pages. Over and over again in the Bible, there's lots of tension in the text. And uh, it's interesting, like, you can find books that try to resolve all of this. I remember when I was an undergrad, I was a biblical studies major, and I go to the library at my college, and there in the library, we have this big book. It's like that thick. It's bigger than the Bible, which is interesting. And it's called the Book of Bible Difficulties, or the Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties. And they go through like every single time or place where you can seem to find some kind of contradiction or tension in the text. And then this very bright person shows how they aren't really tensions at all. Let me just resolve all of this for you. And I remember sitting in the library, and the more I read that book, the less comforted I was. Like, suddenly you're like, wait, but it, if you have to do that much work to try to resolve all of this, maybe the point wasn't resolving all of it, right? If you have to do that much massaging and working, maybe that wasn't what this was for. Here's um, what might be a bizarre metaphor, but this helps me think about it. Imagine you've never in your life seen a vehicle, Maybe uh, you grew up like apart from civilization, or maybe you're an alien, and apparently you do have spacecraft, but you don't have automobiles, so forget about that contradiction. But let's just say that you've never in your life seen an automobile, and then one day you, you stumble upon an H1 Hummer. Now, that's the big military Hummer, right? This is the one with massive tires, and it's, it's designed for the places an army would go where roads aren't ready for you. It's designed for, for grit, right? It's designed for torque. It's designed for off-road kind of adventures. But you see this thing, and you just sort of decide ahead of time that the only kind of car that would make sense to be a car would be a sports car. I don't know where you got that idea, but you've just decided the only kind of car that would make sense to be a car is a sports car. So you get in this H1, you turn that thing on, and you find like a racetrack somewhere where you're going as fast as you can, trying to like just beat everyone else off the line. You're cutting corners real tight, and things don't go well for you. First of all, it doesn't have a lot of quick off-the-line speed because it's not designed for that. It's designed for torque, right? It's not designed for that kind of close-to-the-ground performance that you get out of a sports car. It has all that clearance underneath it to go over trees that are falling in the woods, I suppose, right? Now, imagine instead, though, that, it, that you don't decide ahead of time what kind of car a car should be. You, you just decide, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to observe this thing closely. I'm going to take note of its features, of its aspects, of its characteristics, and I'm going to let the things that I observe begin to talk to me about what this vehicle is. And you might say, well, what kind of driving would take advantage of all of that ground clearance underneath it? Maybe off-roading, right? What kind of driving would take advantage of all of that engine torque? 
maybe off-roading, right, where you might have a lot of mud or sand, and you, you let the very features of the thing that you're looking at teach you what it's for, what it's trying to do in the world. I think this is a reasonable approach to the Scriptures. Like, let's pay attention to it. Let's look at it. Let's let this tell us what it is instead of us deciding ahead of time what it is. And one of the things that we see again and again when we just pay attention, when we just let it be what it is, is it, it, it has some tensions that are pushing against one another. And uh, for me, part of my Bible rehab, like part of what has made this book alive for me in this season of my life, is actually giving it permission, like perhaps even pressing into those things. So let me give you a, another metaphor, and uh, hopefully this will help us a little bit. Another metaphor about what might be going on in this book and how we interact with it. Uh, we'll start with uh, this, just a little puzzle for the room. One plus three plus five. Anyone? Oh, come on, guys, this is the easiest thing of the whole night. One plus three plus five. That wasn't any better. Okay, that's fair. Nine. It's a simple equation. It has a simple answer, right? If you assumed it was a math problem. But what if it wasn't a math problem? One plus three plus five, you can smash all those numbers together, and you can end up with nine, and you can leave one and three and five behind, right? You can just take nine with you. You got the right answer. You know what you needed to get out of that thing. Make sense? What if we weren't talking about math? What if we were talking about music. So I'm going to come over here to the keyboard. Uh, some of you musicians will be totally aware of this, but in music uh, we have a way of thinking about these notes that we play. So this is a G major scale. Everybody feel better now? Yeah, right? And in music theory we, we number these notes. So a G in this scale would be a 1, and an A would be a 2, and a B would be a yeah, there we go, yeah, and four and five, et cetera, right? So the interesting thing is that in music, if you have a one and a three and a five and you put them together, you don't get nine, you get a, a major chord. Now, a couple of things are interesting about that. First of all, when you have a major chord, when you add one, three, and five, you still have one, three, and five, right? Uh, in music, you, you can have all these different elements and they hold together and they go with you. Another interesting thing about music is that music can move you. Like, maybe a couple of us, when 1 and 3 and 5 were put on the board, there was a little bit of exciting drama for us, and then when we heard the, the number 9, we were relieved. But not most of us, right? Because that's a little goofy. But what if I take you through a song, and uh, we come to a... Does everybody want this to happen? It's nice, right? It's like it grabbed your brain and your heart and your ears and your body and all of it and sort of pulled it into the tension it was creating, right? Um, we could go a little further. Like, uh, there's this interesting interval in music. It's wonderful, right? This is actually called a uh, tritone, uh, or augmented fourth or diminished fifth. But uh, in medieval music, they called it the devil's tone. Seriously, the devil's interview. And you weren't supposed to use it in music because they believed it had demonic qualities. And when you hear it, you kind of think it has demonic qualities, don't you, right? But when you hear that and then you hear, same thing. It's really nice, isn't it? Another thing about this is that when I was getting like, good music education from people who understood what makes beautiful music, one of the things uh, again and again and again, am I cutting out on you guys? Huh. Um, is that, uh, that uh, for music to really work for you, um, what you really want to do is you want to press into the tension back off on the release. 
place. Like dynamically, music teaches you like push into those places where there's contradiction, where there's tension, and back off on the release a little bit. Uh, this struck me because I had a professor in grad school who told me that the scripture is not a solo, it's a choir. Uh, in more technical term, they said it, it's, it's polyphonous. It, it has these different sort of voices that are all speaking, and sometimes they're in beautiful harmony, and sometimes they're in unresolved tension. And I think often in, in, in our personal interaction with this book and in the way this book is preached sometimes and in the books that get sold about this book, often what happens is we try to just pretend those tensions aren't there or resolve them. And the problem with that is you would miss all of the music of this book. Like you would miss the way that it's not just trying to kind of create a neat and tidy answer for you. It's trying to grab your heart and your, your soul and your brain and your body. It's not just trying to like get you to the right answer. It's trying to get you to dance. It's trying to get you to move around with it, to feel the energy of it, its flow. And the more that I let this book actually speak to me through its tensions, the more alive it becomes. The more that I actually find that it lives up to the promises that are made about this book. Like, we have these big claims that are made for this book in the scriptures and from the church. Things like, this book is more powerful than a, or, than a two-edged sword, that it could divide soul and spirit, bone and marrow, that it could rip you apart and rebuild you. That it's useful for all the things that we need in life to, to build us up and make us who we are supposed to be. There these big claims. And what I find is that in environments where what we try to do is resolve all of the tensions, the Bible fails to live up to those claims. But in environments where we make space for them, where we let them breathe and open themselves up, where we feel together the ways that it's pushing against different things, in those places, I find this book living up to its promises because it's like music. It grabs my heart. It pulls me into uncomfortable places. It keeps me up at night sometimes. I wrestle with it. And as I wrestle with it, things start changing inside me. Like I start actually becoming something a little different because of the music of this book. So we, we don't want to be a community that tries to resolve all of the tensions. There'll be times when we'll open up this book and we'll say, yeah, I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> that's, that's challenging. That's, that's a problem for me. That's confusing to me. I don't know what to do with that. But we will sit with it. We'll wrestle with it. We'll let it work on us together. Um, an example of how this has been fruitful in my life, and this goes back to something I've shared with you guys before, but I want to come back to it because of what it illustrates. So, um, so I spent uh, my undergrad years at uh, beloved Bethel College here in town, proud alma mater. Um, and w during my time at Bethel, you know, I'd signed a document that removed any sort of personal discretion from the question of drinking because said document resolved that question, and there were to be no drinking at all, ever, even on your 21st birthday with your parents. Just none of that, right? So then I get done with that season of life, and then I get a job uh, at this church in town, this large church. And I'm on stage at this large church, which means everywhere I go, there are people from said church, right? Including like the locker room at the gym when you're naked and they want to talk to you about church, and that's really weird. They're just everywhere, you know? <laughs> so it strikes me that now, in a sense, I have freedom to like consume alcohol if I want to, but it also seems like I should think about that for a second. And it seems like I should think about that because I, I want to be responsible. I want to be faithful. I, I want to live that part of my life like every other part of my life under the reign of God in the way that I understand that reign through this book. So you ask yourself, what does this book have to say about that question? Well, it's kind of not clear. <laughs> Examples. There's um, a lot of alcohol in this book. Sometimes the characters who are engaged with it, it goes great for them, and sometimes it really doesn't. Right? Sometimes we have like, like 
uh, Jerry Springer scenes unfolding, and alcohol is involved in this book. In this book, we have the people of God, the Israelites, commanded by God regularly throughout their life as the people of God in these festivals, these liturgical celebrations, to include alcohol, often wine, but even in one festival, hard liquor. Uh, the sort of ancient Hebrew equivalent of that, like the, the strong stuff, right? I almost said the good stuff, but that would reveal where I'm going with this. So, so we have that testimony there. In John's gospel, the first miracle that reveals Jesus' glory, that is, that is some serious language, right? This is the first sign of Jesus' glory in John's gospel, is that he shows up at a wedding feast, a big wedding party, and as they're running out of wine, Jesus commands them to make more. And by more, I mean a gratuitously irresponsible amount of more wine, if you actually measure the quantity. And just to sort of, again, let the tension push itself on us for a little bit here, in that scene, the steward of the party exclaims and says it's a really big deal that wine this good would be served this late in the party, which implies what? That most people are a little too far gone to notice how good the wine is, right? I'm not trying to be flippant about that. I actually think that's just the fair plain reading of that story there. So we have all of that, right? But then we have wisdom warnings that wine is a mocker, it'll make a fool out of you. We have uh, those stories that I mentioned where alcohol is a part of a problem in people's lives and it takes them far outside of where they're supposed to be and who they're supposed to be. We have the Apostle Paul saying, we are made to live every day in communion with God's Spirit. Like if you actually believe that the, the divine presence of the living God is a part of your life every day, he says, that's something that you don't want to compromise or miss out on. And there's a way of interacting with this alcohol stuff that's incompatible with that, that, that takes you away from that. So we have all of that in the scriptures. And as I was trying to discern this, there's part of me that again says, could we have a better book, please? Could we have some clearer instructions? Could you make it more simple, right? And again, like we said a couple of weeks ago, I, th I think the actual point is the kind of book I was asking for wouldn't have been better because let me describe what happened as I worked through that. As I'm confronted with these different perspectives, these tensions in the text, I have to start asking questions like, what do I really care about? Who do I really care about? Does somebody else's sobriety journey matter to me? Does the fact that alcohol can and has destroyed some people I love matter to me? Do I care about the fact that God has put us in a world where the things that we taste and touch and see and smell and hear are divine gifts and we are actually taught to enjoy and celebrate and live in the pleasure of those things? That's actually a deep biblical theme. I had to wrestle with these questions of what do I care about and what do I value? And as I'm wrestling with them, I'm changing a little bit. Right? I mean, I'm actually becoming something a little different than I was before I entered into that tension, before I entered into that ambiguity. Which it just strikes me again and again that if we hear this text as music with tensions that are pushing against each other, we might actually become something, which is way better than just believing something. And just believing something, that can be math, that can be about getting the right answers, that can be about resolving the tensions. But I actually think that as much as God cares what we believe, he cares even more like what we become. These words like holy, fully alive, um, new creations, like whether we become those things. And I don't think we become them apart from the wrestling. So a couple of ideas for you. First of all, what we're saying is as a community, we're not going to shy away from the tensions. We're going to press into them. And you, you just need to know that. Um, we, we want to hear these 
wrestling matches. We want to enter into them together as a community. So in our preaching and in our worship and in our communal life, we're going to do that as a community. But also like for you, maybe you're wondering, okay, this is great, but what would I do with it, <laughs> right? Well, a couple ideas for you about what you could do with it. Uh, the first one takes me to another practice I've had recently, which on the surface is completely non-spiritual, but, um, but it's been really good. I had a roommate a few years ago, a buddy named Cart, and we, we stumbled onto this profound, never-before-heard-of phenomena in, uh, in pop cultural life. We started listening to whole albums. Like in the Spotify generation of single after single, this is a big deal, right? We literally had this brilliant idea one day. We're like, dude, what if we sat down and listened to a whole album? So we did. We'd turn off our phones and we'd make sure the TV wasn't on and we wouldn't talk in the middle of it. We would just sit and listen to a whole album. And guys, again and again and again, I would think that I had known an artist. Like, pick any artist that I, I love their music, I've listened to them for years, and I would think that I could tell you what are they all about, what are they doing with their art, what are they putting out there in the world, and then I would sit and listen to a whole album, and I always realized I had no idea what they were about before I, I drank in that large quantity of their work, right? In the Bible, often the, the, the fruitful tensions, the things that push against one another, are hard to hear, they're hard to find, when you do like your one verse from here and your one verse from there and whatever's tweetable and then you move on. And I'm not like trying to criticize that. I'm not like, I'm not here to beat anybody up. I'm just saying that the, the deeper things that this text will do for us, the ways that it will help us become something, we'll get more in touch with them when, when we take in sort of large portions of it. I would recommend, for example, pick a book of the Bible and, and just do the whole book of the Bible. Maybe do it more than once. You could pick a, a short one like one of Paul's letters. You could read it beginning to end every day. Some of those letters are so short, you could, you could just take in the whole thing again and again. And what will happen is you won't be wrestling just with a little sentence here or a verse there, but the bigger impulses, the bigger movements of that text will start to work on you, start to move you. You'll start to feel what's going on there. Um, pick a gospel and just move through the whole thing. Uh, Mark has a voice. The Gospel of Mark has a voice. The Gospel of Matthew has a voice. The book of Job has a voice. The book of Psalms has a voice to it. And it can be easier to hear those voices in the choir when you actually read one whole book at a time. So that's just a kind of practical idea that you might be surprised at how, how powerful it is to draw you into these tensions. And then one other thought for us, which ties back to the church thing, which is the tensions are often better heard in community. Like, You'll read a book of the Bible or a passage from Scripture, and you'll be quite certain you know what it means and what it's doing. And then you'll discover some idiot who has another opinion. <laughs> and for a second, you'll think, how could anybody read this any differently than the way I read it? Because obviously, I'm the objective one. And then if you have like, any self-awareness at all, <laughs> that thought will get challenged inside you, and you'll be like, wait a minute, maybe I should listen to this other voice, this other experience of this text. Um, in the fall, we're, we're working right now, and we'll tell you more soon, but we are working on creating a more regular way that more of us can sit around a table together on a regular basis and learn from each other and hear these voices together. So that's coming up. So a couple of those helps. Maybe read big chunks of Scripture and, uh, and maybe sit around a table with others who are wrestling with the Scripture and see if those tensions don't emerge. Now, I was talking to uh, a friend here in our church, Ryan, and we were talking on Sunday um, about these ideas. And uh, Ryan reminded me of this really, really profound thing in Scripture. Um, the people of God in the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament, 
there's a name for this people. And the name for that people is Israel. Now, Israel uh, comes from an episode that happens in the Scripture where one of these characters in the Scripture wrestles with God. It's this bizarre physical encounter wrestling with God through the night and walking away with a limp. And from that episode, uh, this name is given both to him and his people, which is Israel. And the word Israel literally means in the Hebrew, wrestles with God. Wrestles. Wrestles like grabs and fights and sweats and is fearful and is hopeful but wrestles. And another thing that Ryan said to me that just struck me as so true and so important, one thing you can't say about wrestling, wrestling is, um, is not unintimate, right? You, you, your energy may be contested. It may be difficult. You might be frustrated or angry. But the one thing about wrestling is it is intimate. And I wonder if a lot of us have been looking for I mean, an intimate experience of God and we thought that we would get there by having all the right answers, by resolving all the tensions, by finding the right teachers who could tell us how all of this fits together so perfectly and you never have to wrestle with any of it or ask any questions anymore. But what if the intimacy, what if the encounter with God that we are made for, that we long for, is actually waiting for us in the wrestling, in the questions, the tensions, the confusions, the frustrations? What if God is saying, yeah, 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 let's get into it together. Let's go there. That's where I'm waiting for you. So, uh, tension in the text. I I hope these weeks are helping us rediscover this book a little bit. If you've walked with with us for a while, they may be explaining to you why we're interacting with this book the way that we're interacting with it. Maybe the way that we're doing this feels really familiar to you, or maybe it feels a little different. But we want you to know where we're coming from and where we're going with all of that. Uh, Next week, like Ryan said, we'll come together around Jesus' table, and it'll be one more week about this book, too. Uh, Because it's really important for us to say out loud, as much as we love this book, trust this book, want to live in harmony with this book, this book, its greatest power, we believe, is that it points us to Jesus, who is uh, the best news. And so we're going to go there next week. Um, But let's, uh, let's wrap up by standing, if you're able. And today, I'll just, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go kind of more old school on us. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a bow our head prayer. If you want to bow your head and close your eyes, and I'll pray for us. Loving God, I, I know that this book is uh, difficult, and it's difficult for different people in different ways. I know that for some of us, it has brought us great joy and hope, and for others, it has been a burden We feel abused by it or by the people who've used it. Uh, For some of us, it's just so boring and dry and weird and ancient, and we don't know how to pay attention to it or why we would. Um, But I pray that as we open these pages week after week, whether it's in this space or in our private lives, I pray that you invite us into the wrestling, into the grappling, into the tension, so that we could hear the music and learn how to dance with it and move to it and invite others to hear it too. So God, speak to us through the scriptures, and as you do that, point us to Jesus again and again. And we pray that you would grow us in grace and peace. And now, friends, let me look at you in the eye as I say this. Uh, Grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you guys.